This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Lisa Shapiro, uh, New Narratives in the History of Philosophy. Uh, Lisa Shapiro is a professor of philosophy at Simon Fraser University. Uh, new Narratives in the History of Philosophy aims to develop new narratives in our, of our philosophical past that centrally, centrally include women thinkers and thereby to uh, reconfigure, enrich, and reinvigorate the philosophical canon, focusing on the early modern period, roughly 1560 to 1810. Please welcome Lisa to our meeting today. Thank you. Hi there. Um, thanks so much uh, for having me. So uh, as uh, you'll discover in a second, uh, New Narratives in the History of Philosophy is um, the name of a research project that I'm the principal investigator on. I'll show you a bit about that in a minute. But I think um, I'm going to talk about a little piece of that project, the discussions around women's education in the 17th century. But it's fitting, uh, it occurred to me as I was pulling together this presentation uh, last night or yesterday afternoon, uh, that it's, uh, it's somewhat fitting to be presenting to a group as, that's part of the Humanist Society because really the 17th century is near the very beginning of the idea of humanism. And some of what I'll be talking about today will maybe give you a, a kind of sense of the intellectual underpinnings, historical underpinnings of the idea around humanism. So um, let me start my presentation first with a challenge. Can you name some women philosophers other than me? <laughs> sure. Who? Name one. Uh, Martha, Martha Nussbaum, yeah, good. Martha Nussbaum's alive and well, though. <laughs> well, anyone's at this point, yeah. Hannah Arendt, yeah, another 20th century woman philosopher who's not with us any longer, but uh, middle of the 20th century was uh, when she was doing most of her writing. Any others? Good. George Eliot, yes, she certainly uh, identified herself as a philosopher, many people know her as a novelist, um, but she saw her novels as philosophical works. That takes us back to the 19th century, so we're, we're getting a little bit historical, but notice how few names come to mind and how recent most of them are. I expected someone to say Simone de Beauvoir. Usually uh, that's where people stop. And, um, that's not an accident, really. I think um, the, the way in which we, uh, if you call to mind a, an image of a philosopher, it's usually a gray-haired man with a beard wearing a tweed jacket. But this slide is uh, just an array of um, some, some names of 17th century women philosophers that I'm guessing you haven't heard of. And this is just from the 17th century, and this is just a subset of women who identified as philosophers or were identified as philosophers in the period. There are some Italian women, Lucrezia Marinella and Moderata Fante, some French women, uh, Marie uh, de Gournay, 
Jacqueline Pascal, Madame de Maintenon, Gabrielle Souchon, Jacqueline Arnaud, Anne Dacier, Madeleine de Scudery, Antoinette Bourguignon, Madame de Sablé, some English women, some, let me go with the Dutch, Anna Maria van Scormann, Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia, correspondent of Descartes, sort of Bohemian and Dutch and English and German, uh, some English women, uh, Margaret Cavendish, Mary Astle, Bathsua Macon, Damaris Masham, Anne Conway, Afra Bain, uh, Larry, Ma Lady Mary Wortley Montague, Dorothea Erksleben is German, but really mostly 18th century. Anyway, lots of names, people you've never heard of. That's not because they didn't write things that were interesting. Here's some pictures. There's portraits of some of them. I just picked up a handful. The, this one, uh, I'm, not, I'm not good with a pointer. This is, uh, I believe, Lucretia Marinella. That would be Margaret Cavendish and her husband. This is Princess Elizabeth as Diana, um, Marie de Gournay. We don't know whether the top portrait is actually of Anne Conway, but it's uh, usually taken to be of her. Madame de Maintenon and Anna Maria von Scormann. That's actually a self-portrait of Anna Maria von Scormann. Those are just the pretty ones. So given that there's all these women who are actually doing philosophy in the history of intellectual endeavor, what should we do about that? And I work with two assumptions. One, that these women contributed philosophically in their own time, so they have something philosophically interesting to say. And secondly, when you, we do the history of philosophy, it should reflect the diversity of people that were engaged philosophically with interesting things to say that contributed philosophically. So that suggests or implies that the history of philosophy should include these women. But there's a lot of them. And there's a real challenge of what to do given these assumptions. There's at least two strategies that are currently um, in play right now among people like me that are working on this kind of practical problem. One strategy is to just dive into the philosophical work of individual women, effectively reading them in the same way we, we receive other key figures or canonical figures in the history of philosophy. So get their works, start reading them carefully, like we read Descartes or Hume or Kant, and develop interpretations of them from their texts. And that's essential to the project. There's a second strategy, though, that I think is equally as important. One of the, the potential pitfalls of pursuing uh, strategy number one is we get really into the text, but there's only a handful of people working on reading these texts carefully and developing interpretations. And as soon as those people move on to other things or pass away, there's no one left working. You have to be interested in the women in order to spend some time working on them. Well, what if you were interested in the questions these women were addressing? And what you then want to do is tell a new story about the history of philosophy that takes the questions they're interested in as central and then work the then the women 
and their philosophical work get worked quite naturally into a story of the history of philosophy. So if you're interested in the philosophical question, you'll naturally be led to consider the women's contribution to answer, answering that question. I think these two strategies, as I hope is clear from what I've just said, are not mutually exclusive. They actually go hand in hand and work together. And of course, there's other strategies um, as well that one can deploy in trying to incorporate, have the history of philosophy re reflect our, our intellectual historical pa past a bit more accurately. So no matter which strategy we uh, pursue, we need some more information. And that's where the project that was just mentioned fits in two things. Um, the new narratives in the history of, um, history of philosophy project that's been supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, your tax dollars at work, is uh, part, about it, part of the project involves making information more readily accessible. And at SFU, there's two elements, uh, open access elements of that project that have already been started. One is a bibliographic database that tracks the women authors, their works, and various other details about the publication. Right now, the goal is to have, um, we have the built into the database, we have subject tags so that if you're looking for a woman writing on a particular philosophical topic, you'll be able to search for that topic and call and that work and the woman and her work will, will come up. But somebody's got to do that coding, and doing that coding involves reading the work. The other uh, thing that the SFU library has built as part of this project is a digital collection. Right now, there's only one text that's in the di digital collection. It's uh, images of uh, El Princess Elizabeth's correspondence to Descartes in ma the manuscripts. They're actually not her hand, they're copies. Um, but it's the, only, it's the only copy that exists of uh, Elizabeth's letters to Descartes. So they're, Housed images are publicly available at the through the SFU Library Digital Collection. My colleague at McGill, Marguerite Delorier, has a project called Carrel.ca, uh, which is focused on texts related to equality. And she's done a lot of transcriptions of uh, manuscript and print material. And the SFU, those texts were, uh, will be archived as part of the SFU digital collection. So again, making more material readily accessible. This is just our nice little website. There are small screenshots. I didn't know whether there'd be Wi-Fi here or not, so I've got screen, screenshots for you. You can't really read the, uh, the website. It's really easy to remember if you want to check out the things we've been doing. It's newnarrativesinphilosophy.net is the website. That's the bibliography and the digital collection there. But I would be remiss to not mention uh, another project that's part of this group, um, New Narratives Project, at Duke University in the United States. Projectvox.org is really engaged in the first strategy, delving into particular women in great detail with uh, a lot of biographical information, contextual information, information about the text that they're writing, and some, some very um, 
kind of uh, user-friendly overviews of the philosophical views of these women. And right now, I think they have, oh, these images did not come out as uh, clear as I thought. But um, there's, uh, they've got pages now for, let's see, let me see if I can remember, Estelle, Mary Estelle, Margaret Cavendish, Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia just went up last month, I think, Anne Conway, Damaris Masham, and there's one, oh, Emily de Châtelet, a French, 18th century French woman. So they're taking the strategy of going person by person and making information about that woman um, very accessible. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful website. Uh, lots of images, lots of um, historical context, and some philosophy too. So it's uh, it's really well done. This is my colleague. That this is the website of Carrel.ca uh, um, that's focused on the McGill-based project. That's focused on texts related to discussions in the 16th and 17th century about equality um, of the sexes, in particular. All right, so I want to talk, though, about the second strategy. So I think the carrel.ca site is focused on the second strategy, what the philosophical question that Marguerite's focused on is, what is equality? What's the basis for, what, what's the basis for claims to equality? And how is that answered, how is that question answered in the 16th and 17th century with respect to the equality of the sexes? As I'll mention in a minute, the idea that men and women are equal is first articulated in the 1600s, in the early 1600s. That the idea that men and women could possibly be equal is not, it doesn't even occur to anyone really until the 1600s. Carrel, in the, the Carrel that this website refers to is the Carrel des Femmes, uh, or the debate on women, which is basically a debate that starts in the 1400s and goes through to the 1600s that um, starts with women are bad, men are good, and then goes to, no, women are good, men are bad, and seesaws back and forth and back and forth until someone it occurs to someone that maybe that's not really the right way to go. Um, how they get to that realization, though, is quite interesting. So what I'm interested in is a, is a question um, about what it is to be a thinking thing, what it is to think, and how that question gets answered through discussions of education. And let me first give you some context here. There's a lot going on around education in the 16th century. At the beginning of the 16th century, the Jesuits undertook, in France undertook massive educational reform in French schools. And I've been trying to figure out just what that reform consists in. Everyone says the Jesuits under, um, overhauled the uh, university systems but, uh, uh, and the school, the college systems, but n no one's very clear on what that amounted to. At the very least, what the Jesuits did was introduce mathematics, algebra, and geometry into the curriculum and had it be the center point of the curriculum. I'm not sure if they... In they changed pedagogy or 
um, other things, but they really made mathematics um, the focal point of the educational curriculum in the schools. But there are interesting repercussions of that. Marie de Gournay, in her essay on the equality of men and women, which is published in 1622, that is, most people think, the first instance of equality being applied to men and women, 1622. It includes a really interesting argument for the equality of men and women that is meant to be a skeptical argument against the claim that men are more intelligent than women by showing that men, the intelligence of both men and women co-varies with education level. So she compares the French men and the Italian men, and the Italian men are smarter than the French men because they get a better education than the French men. On the other hand, and this is where the, it's a very kind of complicated scientific argument. On the other hand, the French women are smarter than the Italian women, are more intelligent than the Italian women because the Italian women are cloistered in the home and the, the French women um, get to circulate in society, right? So it's not a national difference. It's not a difference in national traits. The difference in the intelligence of the individuals is explained by their difference in education. Anna Maria von Skurman in, I think it's, I didn't check the date on this, I think it's 1634, writes a really puzzling, interesting and puzzling work, a dissertation on the ability of the minds of women to, be, to learn and be improved by the study of letters. It's a series of syllogisms, series of deductive arguments that argue that women, that ed being educated is fitting to a woman. And the arguments are really simple. So, you know, it's meant to convince idiots, basically. Um, but it's also meant to be a demonstration of her own education and her own acumen. So it's how you read it rhetorically is kind of complicated. But it's a series of arguments that women ought to be educated. So we've got a lot of discussion in the early part of the 16th, 1600s of the importance of education and the role that education plays, but there's not a lot about what education consists in. And I think Descartes' discourse on method actually is wanting to intervene in that discussion in a very particular way. What does, what does it mean to be educated? What does it mean to learn? Um, the text of Descartes that most people are familiar with is the Meditations on First Philosophy, which is kind of very difficult text to read. It's metaphysics. Um, the cogito is presented in an extended form there, which takes about five pages in the cogito, in the Meditations, to articulate the claim that the nature of the human mind is, as a, is to think gets articulated in a paragraph in the Discourse on Method. Discourse on Method was written in French for a lay audience. It was meant to be widely read. And um, the, the paragraph that I, that's got the highlighting on there is, um, is from the first paragraph of the discourse. And Descartes, it, it's kind of a funny paragraph. So the first thing to note is the whole title. It's the Discourse on the Method for Rightly Conducting Reason. And for Descartes, 
he wants to assert, first of all, that the power of judging well and distinguishing the true from the, for, the false, which is what we properly call good sense or reason, is naturally equal in all men, and consequently, that the diversity of our opinions does not arise because some of us are more reasonable than others, but solely because we direct our thoughts along different paths and do not attend to them, to attend to the same things. It's not enough to have a good mind. We all have a good mind. We have to direct our attention, direct our mind in the right way to apply the mind well. Well, that raises a question, right? What's the right way to direct your mind? What's the right path to follow? What's the right way to conduct your reason? If we've all got the same good faculty of reason that tracks the truth in a way, what's, what's the path to follow to get to the truth? In addressing this question, Descartes also provides a new way of thinking about education, or so I claim. So I think it's hard to articulate what Descartes after here, but I think, again, this is in the first part of the discourse. If we read the rhetoric of what he takes himself to be doing, I think it comes out what is novel in his view of what a good education consists in. He writes that his own aim in the discourse is to represent his life as if in a picture so that everyone may judge it for himself. And then he continues, my present aim then is not to teach the method which everyone must follow in order to direct his reason correctly, but only to reveal how I have tried to direct my own. One who presumes to give precepts must think himself more skillful than those to whom he gives them, and if he makes the slightest mistake, he may be blamed. But I'm presenting this work only as a history, or if you will, or if you prefer, a fable in which among certain examples worthy of imitation, you will perhaps find, also find many others that it would be right not to follow. So here Descartes there's, there's a kind of refrain in these two paragraphs that the reader is supposed to read what Descartes writes and determine for himself whether it's something worth following. Descartes presenting himself as an example, but not an example just to imitate, rather an example that you're supposed to judge or reflect upon. And in doing that, he's also distinguishing the idea of, remember, what's the, what path ought we to direct our thoughts? He wants to distinguish what he's doing from someone who just gives precepts, rules to follow. Here, I'm going to tell you what path to follow. You do this, that, and the other thing. Descartes doesn't want to do that. Instead, he wants to provide a kind of story that people then judge for themselves how to, what to take or leave in the story, to judge what's true about it and what's false about it. This is just some more uh, passages from the discourse that bring out this point a little bit more explicitly. My plan has never, I'm just going to the middle paragraph, my plan has never gone beyond trying to reform my own thoughts and construct them upon a foundation which is all my own. I'm su sufficiently pleased with my work to present you with this sample of it. This does not mean I would advise anyone to imitate it. 
So he's, he's drawing a distinction between providing a sample and providing something to be imitated. He's describing himself as his own guide. And that's effectively encouraging his readers to be their own guide as well. So what comes out of this then is the Descartes of the discourse is that it's important that education not be didactic, that is not the teaching of rules or precepts that must be followed. Rather, true learning is done for oneself. Examples are important, but examples are not simply to be imitated, but rather to be made one's own in some way. But nonetheless, learning for oneself is not without rules. It's not that you can just go off and take this example and that example and the other example and do whatever you want. There are some constraints to, um, there's some method to thinking for yourself. And that's what the method for rightly conducting reason um, is meant to demonstrate. For Descartes, the method for rightly conducting reason, the method that he's setting out as an example for others to follow, is not your typical set of rules. It's not do this, do that, do the other thing. It's, hold on, take a step back. Don't accept anything is true without evident knowledge of its truth. So just because someone tells you something is true, that's not a reason to accept it as true, you've got to make sure you understand the reason for its truth. Well, how do you know if you've got the reason for a claim's being true or not? Well, you've got to analyze the claim. What's analyzing the claim? Well, you divide the problem. You divide the claim as to, into parts, into simple parts, as, as many parts as you need to break it down into its pieces and then consider each of those parts and whether they're true or not. Once you've uh, broken down the problem, the claim into its distinct parts that you can analyze individually, then you try to figure out how those parts connect together with each other and follow your thoughts in an orderly manner from simple to more complex. So you've broken it down into part, your, your claim down into parts, then you try to rebuild it so that you get your first claim back, but you've got to make sure the parts are in proper relation to one another. And this method only works if you're complete in um, enumerating the parts. So if you leave something out, you're going to not have a good claim to the truth. So it's a very systematic method, but it's not a bunch of rules, really. It's not a set of positive rules. It's a set of, it's a problem-solving technique. It's more of a technique than it is a positive, assert, assertoric claim to the truth. Descartes' discourse had a very far-reaching impact. It was written in French for a wide audience. Lots and lots of people read it. The Meditations was written in Latin, and people in universities read it and it was revolutionary, it had a huge impact too, but the discourse on the method had an impact on, in the vernacular um, to people who weren't uh, in universities. The first person who I want to talk about in terms of Descartes' impact is um, François Poulain de la Barre, a French theologian who then converted to, to Protestantism and then fled to Geneva and 
anyway, no, not much is known about his life. He wrote three, work, three major works um, that are all connected to each other. The first work on the equality of the two sexes, clearly influenced by Marie de Gournay's work uh, on the equality of men and women. That argues that uh, the single greatest prejudice that we all have to disabuse ourselves of is that men and women are not equal, do not have equal natures. And he's actually, uh, and he maintains, he puts forward the claim that the mind has no sex. Um, that's a direct quote from him. That's followed by another work a year later on the education of ladies in which he, um, he both argues for uh, women's education and demonstrates a method of education. And then there's this very puzzling on the excellence of men against the equality of the sexes, which some people have read as taking back the conclusions of the first two works. But that's actually not what the title suggests that. But if you actually read it, what he's doing is imagining someone who objects to his views and answering those objections. So um, it's, you know, a sale, it's a sales technique, basically, to title it. He's wanting to draw in the, the dissenters who think they're going to find an ally and then show them how they're wrong. All right, so here's a passage from Poulain from the preface of The Equality of the Sexes. I'm using a translation by Desmond Clark. The best idea that may occur to those who try to acquire genuine knowledge if they were educated according to traditional methods is to doubt that they were taught well and to wish to discover the truth themselves. As they make progress in the search for truth, they cannot avoid noticing that we are full of prejudices and that it's necessary to get rid of them completely in order to inquire clear and distinct knowledge. So you can see that Poulain is adopting Descartes' method uh, right from the beginning to never accept anything is true without evident knowledge of its truth. And if you go back to the slide with, right, with a quotation you can barely read, Descartes here in the discourse is talking about how custom and opinion persuade us rather than any certain knowledge. For Poulain, a prejudice is a belief that we have from customer opinion. And just because everyone believes it doesn't make it true. For him, the kind of paradigm case of a prejudice is that which is commonly accepted about the inequality of the sexes. That's a belief that people hold out of custom and out of nothing more than custom. And what he goes on to show in this essay is that if you examine it just a little bit, it will be proven to be false and that the mind in fact, has no sex. There is no natural inequality between men and women. There's, of course, social inequality, but the social inequality is due to custom and opinion, not based, not grounded in any truth. So one of the more, there's lots of arguments in Poulain. I'm just going to focus on one about education. So Poulain imagines those people who believe that there's an intrinsic inequality between men and women to point 
to all the uh, character flaws that uh, women have in their behavior. And Poulin's rejoinder to that is, look, any faults that you see in women are a result of their education. Is there anything in what women are taught that leads to a solid education? It seems on the contrary that their education was designed to diminish their courage, to cloud their minds, to fill them with only vanity and foolishness, to smother all the seeds of virtue and truth in them, to neutralize any tendency they might have towards great things, and to remove their desire to improve themselves as we do by depriving them of um, the means to do so. So what Poulin is claiming is that the kind of quote-unquote education that women have received have only inculcated customs into them. And these customs keep women in a, posi in a position of subjugation because their self-confidence is diminished. Their virtue, the right virtues are not cultivated in them. In fact, the kind of education that women receive is not the kind of education that Descartes envisions. Women aren't taught or encouraged to think for themselves. So one of the interesting things, I think, about Poulin is that he's also highlighting, not just that he's recognizing that women aren't receiving the education that that Descartes point, the kind of education, the kind of model of education that Descartes pointing to in the discourse, but that he's noticing that a critical aspect of education is the building of self-confidence and a desire and capacity for self-improvement. So that education just simply isn't a matter of learning the content that's delivered to the students, but also a matter of cultivating the right set of um, emotions and self-conceptions a dimension of self-esteem that encourages the kind of curiosity and search for reasons that forms the core of the Cartesian method of education. In the education of the ladies in the second work, he both argues for women's education and models what, for him, a good education looks like. And what the education of lady, um, ladies consists in is a series of five conversations amongst four people, one of whom is Poulin's alter ego, so the master. But there's also two young women and a young man who are in conversation with each other. What's interesting about this foursome is that they're in different stages of their education. One person's the master. One of the young women is quite far along in her education. The young man's had a formal education, but he's got a lot of prejudices. He hasn't critically examined what he's been taught by custom. And then there's a, a young woman who has had no formal education and is just learning through the conversation. So these four people are in conversation with each other. And while there's a master um, who is leading them in a guided process, objections and questions are encouraged on the part of the master. He's not um, infallible. And in fact, there are occasions where one of the three younger participants asks a question and raises an objection to him and corrects him. And he takes that criticism on board and changes his view. 
Each of the participants has their confidence built by engaging in this conversation and by having their own questions taken seriously. So there's really no such thing as a stupid question. The young man, Tamander is his name, asks a lot of stupid questions, says a lot of really stupid things. But he's taken just as seriously as everybody else, right? Everyone's taken seriously. The other piece um, that's interesting, and this is clearly also following Descartes, is that for Poulain, um, the foundation of an education is understanding one's nature as something that understands. So you can't learn effectively until you have some self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is understanding what it is to think, what it is to have the capacity for understanding. Only when you understand what it is to have a capacity for understanding can you then really undertake the process of learning. So that whole discussion of one's nature as something that understands takes up the first four conversations, and it's not until the fifth conversation that they actually get to some con you know, something that we would call content. They start learning actual stuff. Um, that's not just about who they are as human beings, as thinkers. So one of the distinctive things about Poulain's form of education, and he says this explicitly, is that he thinks that you don't really undertake his form of education until you're old enough. Um, you have to have really gone through some inculcated been inculcated in some habits and customs. You have to have some prejudices in the first place, some false beliefs in the first place before you enter into his form of education. But you might think, well, that's not really the best thing because that has an unfortunate consequence of subjugating, you know, keeping women in particular in a kind of subjugated state because they'd never get taught anything but how to dress up as girls. They don't get taught things. And interestingly, Francois, so that's, this is where Françoise Daubigny, uh, Madame de Maintenant, comes in. She has a very privileged position. She was um, the consort, if not wife, of Louis XIV in France. She was a very powerful woman in the French court. Um, she had a lot of influence, political influence. She, one of the things she did from her position is found a school for girls uh, at Saint-Cyr that was for girls whose fathers, had who, whose fathers were military officers but who had died in war. So these girls had no father to support the family they were in some sense without means. She created a home for them in this school, and the school was there to, to teach these girls. So it's, if you're thinking in terms of class privilege, there's certainly some class privilege. These aren't the poor, poor girls who are getting an education. They're solidly upper middle class girls, but they're not the most privileged young women. They're fathers are dead in battle because there had been war raging across Europe in the, in the 17th century. The school fascinates me, and I'm trying to find out more about it. So one of the basic principles of the school was that it had live-in teachers who 
had a job. The faculty were also all women who were taught how to teach, who were told in no uncertain terms that there was no such thing as a bad student question. So that any student who asked for a reason was entitled to get, get a reason for why, if they asked a why question, a, a reason needed to be given as to why they were doing what they were doing. So reason giving was at the heart of the school curriculum. You can't, if, if a, you know, these are young girls. Young children always ask why, and you can't, the, the teachers were not permitted to say, because I told you so, right? That was off, off limits. What we have are, because she was so powerful and so central a figure, we have a lot of records of the school. I haven't, I've only looked at some of them. But here's the other thing that was super interesting about the school curriculum was entirely of dialogues. Conversations is really more, they're not just two people, there's, they're conversations. And from what I, there were different, um, she understood child development. So there were dialogue, different dialogues for different stages of the education. There were color-coded years uh, of stages of education and different dialogues for each color. The older girls helped the younger girls learn. So there was cross-year support as well. And from what we know, each of the students took on a role in these conversations and had to act out the dialogue. And the dialogues themselves are short. They're like four or five pages each. And they're always a discussion among the different girls of some contentious issue. So one of my personal favorites is on the education at Saint-Cyr. And there's the girls who think, the education's great, and the girls who think they'd rather be playing games than stuck in this education, and they're trying to convince one another of who's in the right. There's no, as you read the dialogues, many of them, although not all of them, it's not clear which of the characters in the dialogue is actually the one that you're supposed to end up in. So some of them are more clear than others, that there's, but there's always, it's, it's never 100% clear, because the counterarguments are also clear. In addition to the dialogues, there are Maintenant's own addresses to the students. It's hard to know how to read those, because they're engineered to achieve a certain aim. And sometimes what she says in her addresses to students contradicts what she says in her addresses to the faculty. So she tells the teachers one thing, and she tells the students another. Which one are you supposed to? take to be the real view, that's a problem. So there's lots of, there's like lots to, lots of questions to be asked about this school. I find it, I'm just really curious. So for me, the question is, so what do the kids do? They act out these dialogues. What do they do after they act out the dialogues? Is there a conversation about how they, their attitude to the role? Do they agree with the role? that they're playing or disagree with it? Is there a discussion about what the import of the dialogue is? These are questions I have that I need to still try to find answers to. I'm not even sure how I would find answers to those questions. Um, but it seems to me that there's two central challenges that the school is trying to address. One is that it needs to, 
it's aiming to teach children to give reasons for their beliefs, right? So th the dialogues are illustrating, modeling reason-giving practices. And the second, and that, that's sort of why I'm interested in what the aftermath of the dialogue is. Are they just kind of imitating reason-giving practices so that when they go off to ask for reasons in the real world outside of school, they're just parroting the dialogues and the behavior in the dialogues, or are they actually taught to reason first through imitation and then through reflection on what they're doing? I don't know the answer to that question. And the second is to, um, the second aim is to provide a moral education that inculcates a set of social norms and expectations. And here, it's sort of interesting because the first aim, I think, is really quite radical, to teach children how to be reasoners. The second aim is very conservative. The kind of social norms that she wants to instill in these girls is the importance of being married and the, the importance of obeying your husband, the importance of uh, having faith in God and being pious. Right, so it's really quite socially conservative, even if the dialogues that are furthering those ends are raising objections to those ends themselves. So it's a question of how these two ends interact with each other. That's interesting. So that's what I just talked about. Is it possible to inculcate the kinds of habits that allow for a stable society? Madame de Maintenon, as the consort of the king, um, very much wanted to preserve a stable society, right, to prevent revolution and insurrection, while instilling a skeptical attitude that is supporting the reason, the, the ability to give reasons. Is it possible to be both skeptical and conservative at the same time? And I think that's one of the challenges that Maintenon's school is. Uh, is meant to um, address. Now there's one other um, person who I want to mention because um, Mary Estelle, English woman, um, also proposes a school for women serious, in her a serious proposal to the ladies. It's also premised on, on a skepticism on skepticism, but for Estelle it's premised on a skepticism about cultural norms. The very sort of upbringing that Poulain criticizes, and in many ways the very sort of, of cultural norms that Maintenon is trying to reinforce in certain ways. Now, what's interesting about Estelle is that she initially proposes a school for girls in part one. She's trying to raise money to build the school for girls, but she fails or changes her mind, it's not clear really. She doesn't raise enough money to build a school in any case. And in part two, for whatever reason, she moves away from an institutional context. She stops thinking about a school for girls and instead switches to um, having individual courses of study. And the individual course of study she advocates is clearly premised on Descartes' discourse. It's almost, there's the method she articulates for thinking clearly is almost verbatim from a translation of Descartes' discourse. So one question to ask about Estelle is really, is her shift to the individual course of study challenge to, is, is just an accident, a fact that she wasn't able to raise money 
for the institution she wanted to build, or is it actually a philosophically driven switch? She realized that institutions have uh, an intrinsically conservative function to them, and that conservative function of, in, in, of, of inculcating cultural norms, of providing moral guidance, is in a condition where women are subjugated counter to the very liberatory exercise of teaching girls to reason. So I don't know the answer to that question. That's an answer to sort of figure out. But I think it raises two interesting questions that I want to close with. Is it possible to teach children to think for themselves in an institutional context, that is, in a school? given that institutions are um, wanting to function to preserve social stability, can you teach children to think for themselves in a way that doesn't result in undermining a stable social structure? That's one question. And on the flip side of it, um, many of you might be aware of the new BC K through 12 curriculum, which has critical thinking as a core competency, uh, as well as other core competencies like creative thinking, but we won't talk about that. Does the 17th century have uh, resonance with uh, what's going on in the British Columbia school system today? So thank you. Thank you.